Welcome to the Political Philosophy Podcast. I'm Toby Buckle. In this week's episode, we'll be talking about public reason liberalism, or a liberalism that appeals to some sort of overlapping consensus for its justification. If you've listened to some of my solo episodes, you'll know that this is an approach to justifying liberalism and thinking about what liberalism is that I've argued against preferring an older sort of liberalism that appeals to human goods and human needs as its justification. So it was really great to be able to explore these issues in conversation and put some of my challenges and concerns to an expert on this type of liberalism and a defender of it in real time. I'm not going to do an extended introduction to this one, Because, firstly, I don't want to front-load the discussion with my own views in a way that might seem unfair. But secondly, and I discussed this with um, my guest a little bit before we hit record, the conflict that we're mapping out between two different approaches to liberalism doesn't have a clear focal point. In other words, there's a number of arguments and challenges and counterpoints both on the theoretical level and on the practical level, and it doesn't necessarily reduce to a crux on which the entire argument depends. I mean, you might disagree with that characterization, but it's a number of themes and differences in approach, so I think it's best to just give you the conversation. As is, just before we get started, I want to make a note of my gratitude to everyone who makes this podcast possible. So everyone on Patreon who's been supporting this. As you probably know by now, this podcast goes out for free to tens of thousands of people. And it goes out advertisement free. We don't do any commercial advertisements. And all of the costs associated with the podcast are covered by listeners. I'd particularly like to thank Charles Gilbert who's just signed up on Patreon at the patron level. So if you have a look at my Patreon page, you'll see there's um, various levels of support, and I generally recommend ask, request, however you want to think about it, that people sponsor the show at $2 an episode, and the way I've been phrasing that is a cup of coffee an episode. However, I did put some levels in beyond that for people who want to really be a part of making this show happen, and helping us build for the future, and Charles was able to come in at that higher level, which is really freaking awesome, so thank you dude, you're helping, really genuinely helping, make this possible. And I realise this isn't open to everybody, but if you are able to come in at one of those higher levels, I have all sorts of ideas about what I could do with more of a budget on this show. And, in fact, I can't spoil this one for you right now. But precisely because we have picked up more listeners and more financial support, there are a couple of projects I've been working on, which are on the tip of my tongue but I can't reveal right now, um, which are made possible by that um, greater both financial base and uh, listener base. So more to follow on that soon, I hope. For now, big thank you to Charles for being so generous, and big thank you to all of my listeners for legitimately making this show possible. 
Okay, back to today's episode. My guest today is Kevin Vallier. He's Associate Professor of Philosophy at Bowling Green State University and Director of that university's programme in Philosophy, Politics, Economics and Law. He's the author of Liberal Politics and Public Faith, Beyond Separation, and over 30 peer-reviewed articles and book chapters. He's also the co-editor of Political Utopias and Religious Exemptions, as well as Must Politics Be War? Restoring Our Trust in the Open Society, which is the book we discuss most in this interview, as well as his upcoming. So, I really enjoyed this this conversation. It was really great to be able to exchange ideas on what liberalism is and what it ought to be. So, without any further preamble, let's get straight to it. It is my absolute pleasure to bring you Professor Kevin Vallier. So I'm joined today by Professor Kevin Vallier. Professor, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. I'm really delighted to be here. Cool. So how do you introduce yourself? How do you, what are the issues that you work on and you think about and you like to write about? So I'm an associate professor of philosophy at Bowling Green State University. Um, I work primarily in political philosophy and normative ethics, um, but I have really strong interests in the sort of field of PPE or philosophy, politics, economics and philosophy of religion. Uh, A lot of my early work was uh, on religion and politics and the proper role of religion in liberal democracies. Mm. Uh, And that is a study of a kind of a way to resolve a certain kind of social conflict between religion and politics. My next project that we're talking about in Must Politics Be War is a matter of um, how to resolve certain kinds of social conflicts that we're seeing, not just actually in the US, but it's pretty interesting to see the cleavages in the UK as well because um, there are some parallels. Uh, so, so lately, I've been concerned with how to establish trust between people with diverse political, religious, uh, moral perspectives. Uh, so almost all of my work can be sort of characterized under the title of my blog, uh, Reconciled. And that's fundamentally what I'm interested in, is the sort of philosophical and practical challenges uh, to reconciling people with fundamentally different pictures of the world. Okay, so the book we're talking about, and we might get on to you upcoming as well, But the book we're talking about is Must Politics Be War? Restoring Our Trust in the Open Society. Um, And in this, let's just start with some basic terms. So in this, you say politics can often read as, quote, institutionalised aggression. And in contrast to that, you would at least aspire towards um, a politics of social trust and moral peace. So can you just quickly cash out those terms so we're all on the same? Yeah, so um, I can just give a pretty simple uh, illustration. You know, one of the funny things about Locke's state of war is that unlike Hobbes, it doesn't co-vary. Um, the state of nature and the state of war don't co-vary to the same degree. So mm. you can be in a state of war with a state, mm. and you can be in the, well, not in a state of war even if you have no state. So what is it then for Locke that makes you in a state of war, say, if you're in a monarchy? Mm. 
the idea is that Locke says is that you know you have a someone has a declared design on your person or your property or your rights or something like that. But you know, I sort of point out um, at, there actually being a declared design or some threat is neither necessary nor sufficient to be in a state of war. I don't think one. It's it's not necessary because you you'd get in a kind of state of fear and conflict even if there were no declared design and it's not sufficient because you may not even know about the design. The real problem that gets you into a state of war and I think I can make sense of this is an interpretation of Locke, but as a general idea, is that we're in a state of very low trust. Right. In particular, trust in the core sort of natural laws or let's just say moral principles that we rely on uh, to cooperate with others, not harming, not killing, not stealing, not defrauding and lying. Uh, and so on and so forth. So what distinguishes a state of political war from a state of political peace, or the kind of moral peace, is the levels in that society. So a society that's in a state of institutionalized aggression is one where social trust is very low. Even if people are of goodwill, they don't think that others are, and they can't let their guard down. And so low trust societies are tinderboxes, right? They don't have to actually be attacking one another. In fact, for neither Locke or Hobbes is the state of war one where people are necessarily fighting. Hmm. Um, instead, the idea is, at least I think about it with a social contract tradition, is we, we need institutional solutions to low levels of trust in most people. So a state of moral peace, I argue, is when a society's level of social trust is both high and justified, justified in the sense that it's well-grounded. It's based in the belief that others are trustworthy, not manipulation, propaganda, deception, or something along those lines. So the question of must politics be war is the question about whether we can sustain high levels of social trust when people have so many different worldviews and commitments and values that might incline them to mistrust one another. So we get the moral peace from promoting social trust, and um, we get social trust from institutions that help to create the foundation for rational, rationalizing trust, namely trustworthiness. What institutions can make diverse people trustworthy in the eyes of one another? Which brings us on to liberal justification. Just to clarify yep. for my own understanding, though, yep. if we're using the term politics as war or politics as institutionalized aggression, that's yep. not just practically or according to your Framework, yeah. at least. That's not just practically or causally opposed to social trust, it's definitionally opposed to it, because what constitutes a set of politics as war, what's defining of it, is a lack of trust between That's right. persons. That's right. There are phenomena you can predict would follow from it that don't follow necessarily conceptually. So particular strategies that political parties and low-trust democracies would pursue would be empirically variable, but they're things that you would expect, right? So, for instance, you don't trust the other party. You don't want to lose to them, right, mm. because they can't be trusted to follow the basic moral rules. So what you'd predict is that, is that parties with societies are low-trust, they're going to erode democratic norms. Mm. So, for instance, they, they're going to try to push uh, voter disenfranchisement. Um, they're going to get you really scared about people who are really different from you in order to increase their power because trust is low. There's all kinds of things you can predict would occur in low-trust societies, and that, lo and behold, you find in societies where trust is low or middling. Um, so yes, I mean, so when I think of institutionalized aggression, it, it can be cashed out in lots of different kinds of, kinds of ways. I think we see in the U.S. Uh, a lot of that coming from the Republican Party with attempts to kind of rule as a minority from, from a minority uh, point of view in terms of what political power. So following on then to where, where this fits into a political theory, is yeah. that set of concepts ground the justification of liberalism for you? So you yeah. write um, 
this is towards the end of the book, a yep. liberal order is justified because a constitution that protects liberal rights is publicly justified according to the procedures set out in chapters 4 through 6, and then a liberal political constitution completes a free and open moral order by amplifying the capacity of that moral order to sustain social trust for the right reasons. So yep. if I read that, there's an intrinsic and an instrumental justification here. Yep, the intrinsic right. is this Rawlsian idea of public justification and public reason, and then the instrumental is liberalism is justified because by having a liberal constitution and respect for liberal rights, that provides the best framework for getting this um, good of social trust. Did I read that right? Yeah, there's, there's two kinds of rationales or moral, basic moral considerations that figure into the, the case for liberal institutions that I make. One is that they bring about trust, which you can call instrumental if you like. I call it telic in the book. It doesn't matter. Um, but there's also the case that when, that when we have relations of trust, that by abiding by the principles that can be justified to all and the institutions that can be justified to all, we exhibit a certain kind of respect for one another as persons. So one way to think about this um, is take friendship. We want friendship because it's valuable in itself, but once we're friends, there's certain duties that we have to one another that out of respect for each other, we have to go along with. In the same way, I think when we have a society that can sustain trust, we both have the valuable relation of trust, but we also have, which is, you know, instrumentally valuable, but it also clothes us with certain kinds of duties and moral requirements that we wouldn't otherwise have and that liberal institutions enable us to fulfill with respect to one another. Um, now, it takes a while for me to get to the case for liberalism because the, the first half of the book is trying to get from the idea of trust to the idea of public justification and then to argue that liberal institutions are publicly justified. So the argument has really two big steps. So this idea of public justification is, um, for me, an ideal of justification to each person in terms of their own values or perspectives, kind of like what Rawls calls an overlapping consensus, um, but not, not just the same. And the idea there is, imagine that we had a series of social rules that could be justified to each person's perspective on their own terms, such that everybody knew that the rule was not only binding for them, because it makes sense from their moral perspective, but that it's binding on others because it's compatible with their perspective as well. In that case, the relevant norm, and the way I'm putting it now, is a touchstone of trustworthiness. We can see we've got reason to go along with it. Others do too. We can know that about each other. And so that can become a sort of publicly understood fact. So we can see each other's compliance with those norms as evidence that one another is trustworthy. And then trusting attitudes can form in response. So we have to find the institutions that can be justified to multiple points of view. Those will incentivize trustworthiness, which will create trust. So which institutions are those? What are the ones that can be justified to each perspective? Well, I can continue, but that's the setup. Let's, let's, let's the get argument. back to the justification of yep. institutions to a plurality of perspectives. I yep. have one more question on the trust yep. thing, though, before yeah, we yeah. get good, there, good, good. is that... To, to be summary, and to perhaps slightly roll that argument up more than it wants yeah. to be rolled up, yeah. trust is very central to this argument. This that's is right. one of yeah. the sort of foundational pillars yeah, that we're building right. this thing mm -hmm. on. Um, so, translating this into sort of regular day discourse, I'm always a little sceptical of this, as putting it, I grant that it's a good, and I grant that all other things being equal, yeah. 
it's better that we have social trust and I will you know, I'm sure yeah. there's a lot of empirics that having social trust yeah. will also instrumentally lead to other goods. It's um, great stuff. Yeah. Um I'm not sure it would make my top five though. So concretely, if I were offered a hypothetical choice between um a much more egalitarian distribution of wealth in America or America taking action on global warming, say, if I could have one of those or a higher degree of social trust, I think pretty much every time I'm going for meaningful action on global warming. And that's not to say that the former is unimportant. It's just, I would say, mm. those, those outcomes of political processes are of such extreme moral urgency that they would take priority over, for me, over um, a particular tr- set of, a particular mm-hmm. trusting relations in reaching those outcomes. Um, and if it follows, I mean, you could disagree with, with, with me on two levels. You could disagree that I should be making that prioritization, or you sh- could disagree that it doesn't follow from that prioritization that yeah. trust shouldn't still be at the heart of our liberal justification. Yeah, yeah. So, um, I have a section on this that's ba- – because the objection you're running, a uh, few people have run it, but there's a um, paper by uh, Fabian Wendt um, who, uh, that's just come out in Rescuing Public Justification from Public Reason Liberalism, where he argues that public justification is a good, important, but it's not the basic political concept. There's all these other things we care about, and so we're, we're free to sort of trade them off. Um, so I have actually a couple of different answers uh, to this concern, um, and I can go sort of – methodically. The first one is just to actually get a sense for how valuable social trust is, and that's going to come out a lot more in the next book where I talk at some length about the empirical benefits, but they include things like economic equality um, because people are more likely to accept redistribution when people can trust each other, Uh, things like economic growth. So the idea is that people can engage in more transactions. There's more wealth. There's more wealth to be distributed. There's more wealth that can be put into certain social priorities. Um, more social trust oftentimes means more trust in government, which means that government actors are more free to act uh, in order to solve pressing problems. So a lot of the things that you're tempted to see as contrasting with trust, I think empirically, and this again, this is just the first response, empirically, they actually go together. A lot of the things that folks on the left want in particular um, need a lot of social trust to get them. Um, Can so, I give you the yeah. counterpoint to that one before we get to yeah, the next yeah, argument, yeah, though? Yeah, good, good, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so let's accept as writ, and I, I don't think I'm yeah. saying let's accept just to see the point. I'm like, I'm sure this yeah. is true that yeah. social trust is valuable for a variety of reasons, and more yeah. than that, that having that trust will um, allow us to or increase the probability of getting to say a more egalitarian yeah. society. The first point is that I think that the causality could also run the other way, in uh-huh, that uh-huh. I think there's a coherent story you can tell that the inegalitarianism of our current society is one of the indirect, strong driving factors of a breakdown in social trust. Uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. If people no, are more different yep. to each other, they're going to trust each other less. The next yep. would be, um, I still don't think it can, you know, whatever amount of goods, you know, um, social science can put on the table showing us that this leads to, I still don't think it clears the bar um, of a binary hypothetical choice set by, say, global warming. Because That's glo- true. Because global warming is an existential concern. 
And, you know, if there's basically, if there's not a planet, then there's not going to be a planet for us to have trust on. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, no, no, that's true. That's why it's just the first of several. So, yeah. um, but the first thing I like to do is just sort of like soften the contrast between mm-hmm. trust and other goods, um, in order just, just, just to make the important point about how important social trust is and and how little it conflicts with certain kinds of priorities, mm-hmm. um, because it can amplify them in certain kinds of ways. And I actually think a breakdown of trust is, uh, is, uh, particularly on how much it breaks down is actually really very bad um but it you know it's not going to destroy the planet or anything so sure so what other reasons are there um well one of the things i i've mentioned um maybe in our pre-conversation but i think um is is the way in which certain kinds of relationships with others give us non-instrumental reasons to act so for instance when i make a promise i acquire a kind of non-instrumental reason to act i owe you something in virtue of the relationship that we have and i should respond to that reason even if i could secure greater value by ignoring the deontological reason and i think that relations of friendship are obviously stuffed with those kinds of deontic reasons um where the right way to respond to the value of friendship is to be a good friend not to say maximize the number of friends that you have you you follow certain kinds of norms of friendship that's how we value friendship. I think trust is something similar. We should stress the instrumental benefits, but also once we have relations of trust, there's certain kinds of duties that we have to each other, not to say use certain kinds of violence against them um, or to betray them in certain important ways. Now, you can run your objection again and say, yes, but surely even these the benefits of trust and the deontic reasons prescribed by trust can be overweighed, outweighed by something. And to which my response is at a certain margin, obviously that's true. The nice thing, though, is that basically no deontological political theory, with the exception of a really hard-nosed, say, Nozickian respect for persons, and even his view, I think, doesn't come to this, thinks that there's some margin of moral catastrophe. In fact, Nozick even says this. I mean, uh, where there's a certain amount of moral catastrophe that can override a side constraint. Um, So anybody's view, uh, any non-crazy, and Rawls even uses that language, non-crazy deontological view, is going to say that at some point bad consequences outweigh the deontic reason. So I'm not alone in that boat. So the first thing I say is social trust is really great and doesn't conflict with other goods as much as you would think. And in addition to that, you want to appeal, remember the weight of the deontic reasons that you have. And three, once you get to those extreme margins, then you just say, okay, yeah, you have to make the trade-off, but that's something almost every single deontologist will say. I guess the force of the challenge for me isn't... is only partially answered by the fact that those goods might be mutually promoting in real life. It's more like... the point of the hypothetical isn't that I think... Well, we can get on to the applied, because it's... But isn't that I think we're necessarily facing that choice, per se? We may be or we may not be, and I think actually in some cases we are, and in some cases we aren't. It's more like what's more important. Right. And if, like, global war... If, if, let's just say, survival is more important, shouldn't that be the foundation of our political theory as opposed to trust? And the justification for liberalism is what's the set of behaviours, practices, beliefs, and institutions that will maximize our chance of survival. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so the, so, the, so the basic objection here seems to be, look, let's look at the most important goods and let's ensure that uh, political bodies are promoting those particular goods. I mean, that's the sort of thing that w- we really ought to be doing. Okay, um, there's a couple of things to say here. One, I think, it's, strictly speaking, my approach is compatible with this um, because social trust is a weighty good, but it's not the only good that we care about. 
Um, and in certain cases, we may just have to say there's other things that matter. Uh, I'm not trying to give a political theory that uh, has a comprehensive account of all the goods that we want. Um, it's more, how do we get these relationships that that the contractarians and the social contract tradition have been concerned with uh, for centuries, given how important they are? But of course, you know, if aliens come and they're going to destroy the earth, if we continue to have a social contract, why then, you know, we shouldn't have a social contract. Um, but then you might say, OK, well, let's get a list of those basic goods and then let's see how much any of this trust stuff actually matters. Um, and, and, then, and then my response is to go back to the thing that I think you, you're not finding so helpful, which is say, look, if we're looking at basic goods, we need to figure out how much of a basic good social trust is. If it turns out it's a big one. Then that's one of the reasons to build a political order around it. Um, so I think that um, what's going to matter um, if you give the let's just promote these goods is, you know, where, where social trust comes up in the ranking. And I think it turns out that when you look at if you have a kind of, say, crude uh, Maslow's hierarchy of needs kind of political theory where you start off with like do people eat, you know, do they have health care or whatever, then you think, OK, you know, these are the things we should prioritize. But eventually we get to the point where we start to care about certain kinds of relationships with each other. I mean, I think we always care, but if nobody can eat, fine. Um, maybe that's a problem. Although trust is a pretty good way to get people to cooperate so you can make enough food. Um, but the thought is that when we start to care about being related to each other in certain kind of ways, and we want to have relationships with others, trust is going to be a part of all of it. So for instance, if, if you want to base a society around friendship and love, I think trust is a precondition. So one of the things I say in the book is, look, low trust societies, you can maintain relations of love and friendship with people in your tribe or your in-group. That is, there is a lot of what researchers call particularized trust. But in high-trust societies, you can form and maintain relations of love and friendship with way more people, right? You can get to know people that aren't in your tribe or your clan. Um, and I think almost all of us have or have had partners that were outside of what our, our presumptive clan would even be. Um, so the thought is that you know, if you start to look at basic goods like eating, um, health care, love, friendship, it turns out. They all need certain kind of cooperation, and trust is at the heart of it all. So, I, you know, if people start to say, yeah, let's promote these basic goods, trust is going to be half part of the story. And then when we reflect on the kind of ways we think it's appropriate to realize trust, um, my, my story for public justification, I think, will get off the ground. So, let's concretize this a little then. Uh-huh. Um... Well, I mean, actually, let's just start with a simple, would you characterize the current state of the United States as a low-trust society or a comparatively low-trust society across our political partisan divides? It's not especially untrusting, it's a, and it, 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 um, but it's become much less trusting over the last 40 years. So we're one of the only societies where social trust seems to be falling. Right. Um, and there are some societies that's going up, but most of the time, social trust is a very stable measure internationally. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we've been measuring it for several all over the world uh, since the eight, early 80s, and it just tends to stick. And mm -hmm. the, so the problem for us is that we've got falling trust. I'm more worried about arresting the fall. Um, you know, there are a lot of things that may explain why it was high when it started to be measured in the 60s. Because in the U.S., we've actually been asking a trust question since 1958, but the best data we have is from the early set, starting in the early 70s, when about half of people said most people can be trusted. Uh, now we're down to about a third mm. of people, um, and and in fact, it's mostly among the young. So you know, if you look, say 
half of people or 60 percent, sorry, 60 last year, a Pew poll, 30 percent of people over 65 said most people can't be trusted. Okay. 18 to 29 year olds, 60 percent of them said most people can't be trusted. So the amount of distrust has increased dramatically within the U.S. population by generation. I think a lot of so the idea is that it's not just falling trust, it's falling with age cohorts. And so we should expect it to continue to fall. Um, so we want to arrest like, that collapse. I guess this goes to like what's primary in your political theory, though, because I don't personally view it, well, you can call it crude but or, or reductive even, but I don't view it as wrong necessarily to put a, a more direct measure of um, welfare or egalitarianism at the bottom of a political theory. Because if I think about why is trust falling and why is it falling by cohort, the, the story I would tell about that would be all to do, I would be a sort of materialist on this one, the story I would tell would be all about um, underlying political and economic outcomes and how both the lack of trust we see and a rising partisanship is a consequence of political decisions that have been made that need to be reversed. So just quickly, since the 1970s, we've had a rising level of economic inequality in America that's directly related to political decisions that we made. We've also had an uncoupling of wages from productivity. So in simple language, people are working longer and harder for fairly stagnant and in sometimes even declining rewards. And coupled into that process has been an intergenerational inequality. So I don't have the figures in front of me, but if you look at the share of wealth that boomers have in our economy, not only does it dwarf the share of wealth that other generations have, the share of wealth that they had when they were our age or when they were millennials' age was much greater than the share of wealth that we have now. So young people are coming into a world where for their entire lives they have been increasingly working harder for less. And older generations, or some, I should say, within older generations, have been completely retaining the wealth, and that's bound to lead to a breakdown of trust, but as a consequence, not a cause. And then, you know, we talk about increasing partisanship, but again, I would see that as a consequence of certain political decisions. So we're, at the present, reaching the tail end of a political realignment in which America's primary social cleavage, which is our attitudes towards race, have gone from being competed over within parties to being competed over between parties. And that's a consequence of a self-conscious strategy, you know, the so-called Southern strategy that Republicans employed in order to consolidate white Southern votes. And now as a result, quite some time later of that strategy, our politics has become much more partisan. So, so if we start talking about data, if we start talking about data, so I, I have pretty detailed opinions, we want to go case by case. First, it's definitely the case that most social trust researchers think that you're right about economic inequality. That more, a higher Gini coefficient means lower social trust. And actually, in my next book, I have the whole chart. The correlation is striking. It's very striking. Um, 
Here's the trouble, as usual with these things, we don't know the direction of causation, but here's a, a pretty plausible story running in the other direction, which is that when you trust people less, you're less likely to accept being redistributed from them. So if you think the poor are going to waste stuff because you can't think they can't be trusted, you're more likely to support parties on the right than parties on the left. It turns out, and this is weird, social trust is exogenous to like almost every, it's, it's the cause and almost never the effective stuff. So it's actually really, really mysterious where it comes from, why it's so stable. It's even bizarre. Um, Swedes are extremely highly trusting in Sweden and in Minnesota. Um, so it, it's, it seems to have this like weird cultural uh, element, and we don't know how to explain it. Um, there's a big conference in Sweden that I'm hoping to go to because they're like, why, why do we trust each other so much? We don't really know. Um, so you might think that the things got going where lower social trust was leading to more economic inequality because people were like, oh, yeah, cut taxes. Like it, all it was going to do is be wasted anyway. So why, why waste it? Why, if it's going to be wasted in the hands of bureaucrats, I'll keep it for myself. Why not? Right. Um, and in the U.S., there's a bunch of things that are happening simultaneously. Race is one thing, but um, uh, lopsided secularization is another one. So the the UK uh, uh, secular is is pretty much a secular country, and it didn't secularize, as I understand it, in in anything to do with partisans. I don't think Tories were that much more religious, say, than Labour. Um, you had a whole lot of really religious Labour union type folks, but it all kind of collapses together. So in the U.S., what you're seeing is a collapse in liberal Protestantism, which has been a collapse in religiosity on the left, but not on the right. Um, so religious cleavage has mattered. Abortion became an issue. And in the United States, it's been a central uh, cleavage for a really long time. Um, the race story is important because it, it, it was, it's the way that Republicans were able to actually come to exist as parties in the South because the South was completely Democratic because they'd all been wiped out because the radical Republicans had imposed uh, you know, desegre you know, all kinds of racial equality on them. So once they were able to get rid of them in the 20th century, there were places in all over the South where there's no Republican Party. So polarization starts to happen in the public, I think, a little bit before it happens in politics because the Republicans are at a, a lag because they have no base in the South at all. So they have to create their own parties to get control. So race is definitely part of the story. Um, it's also economics is part of the story. Religion is part of the story. Um, and we just can't forget how religious a society the, U the U.S. is. Um, and has has been for some for a long time. So um, all of these things go together with certain kinds of electoral reforms and changes. So, for instance, the parties in the 50s and 60s, a lot of people, including the American Political Science Association, thought that there weren't enough differences between the parties like there are, say, in the UK. And so they created electoral mechanisms uh, that would make the parties more different from one another, which I think uh, helped to create certain certain differences. So our parties were pretty interchangeable in the 50s. Um, so we weren't always so polarized, but they were. So there's a whole book on called Polarizers that's about this change. There's been a huge amount of work. So there's sociological differences. There's differences in how we vote. Um, so there are all these things that seem to be going together. But I think that economic inequality does reduce trust somewhat. But here's the weird thing. Ethnic diversity does not decrease social trust that much either. It depends on how it is distributed. So, for instance, if your society has very disparate ethnic groups or if people interact a whole lot, that's okay. 
But if there's local segregation where here's the white corner, here's the black corner or something like that, that's very bad. Um, but here's this, this curious thing. If knowledge of racial differences by itself isn't decreasing social trust very much, why would knowledge of economic differences be doing it any the same? I mean, you would think it would kind of like follow similar patterns. The issue would be like ri the, the rich people down the street, right? They're the ones who are going to hit hit trust. Um, so the question is, for, for me, for the, the trust theorists is, well, if ethnic diversity isn't so bad for trust, why is economic diversity so bad? So my thinking is there's this, there's, there's this notion of social trust. We don't know a lot about what causes it. I have a theory that it has to do with people's expected degree of social norm compliance. And I don't have a theory about how those expectations form because nobody has a good theory about how those social expectations form. It is a true social scientific mystery. There's a couple of things we know destroy social trust. Rank corruption, particularly among legal officials. You see bribes, it's terrible. If you're in a communist society where there's secret police, also bad. You're not going to trust most people if, like in East Germany, 5% of people were in the secret police when the wall fell, right? One in 20 adults you meet could get you sent to prison and you have no idea who they are. So there's certain kinds of rank corruption and fear that can destroy social trust. Um, there's other factors that affect it. Here's something crazy. Societies with monarchies seem to be somewhat more trusting than those without them. Um, I think there's something about the separation of symbolic ritualistic power. Yes. That's a whole other argument. No, 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 no. I actually think that's absolutely true. When you have high-status members of your society that aren't part of the key cleavages or the status, say, neutral on those cleavages, they become focal points for people to say, okay, well, look, the, the queen, I mean, she's great, and everybody thinks she's great. You know, the U.S., we don't have anybody like that except for, say, Dolly Parton anymore. Um, or Mr. Rogers, but he's been dead. I mean, there are very, very, very few people anymore that everyone can just say, oh, they're amazing, um, compared to, say, the way things were in decades past. And I, I don't, and when I raise Dolly Parton, I mean, it's funny, but I mean, it's not entirely, it's not entirely silly. There aren't a lot of places where you can go where people of all different walks of life are listening to one person's music. And so. yeah, we like that. I mean, that, that's going to drag us down another thing. I have one more thing on the applied stuff before the theory, which is let's, yep, let's yep. grant everything yep. you've said, right? Yep. The social trust is yep. Yep. important, but let's also just yep. say the chain of causality is messy. It can be both yes, a cause right. yep. and yep. an effect. Yes. Right? Yes. Yeah. Um, and... I mean, I still sort of... Although trust in government is different. I should say that. I should just right. so your listeners know. Social trust is trust in most people. Right. That looks like it's usually a cause. But trust in government is usually an effect. And we know a lot about what causes that. Well, so following on from that... Yeah, yeah. Um, what sometimes concerns me about this is that, that there can be a sort of false equivalence when we talk about growing lack of trust between the two tribes in America, because it's undoubtable yeah, sure. we have evolved into a more two-teams politics, if yep, you like. Yep, so yep. you write in um, the introduction, yep. a present American political life looks like a brute contest for domination, where the victors drag the country in, the, in their direction without respect or concern for the losers. End quote. That wouldn't be the summary at all I would give of the last... 30 or 40 years of American political governance, I would say the last two Democratic presidencies we've had, Obama and Clinton, were defined by 
a desire that any reforms or legislation we passed would be done in a way that was acceptable to to the other side. And just to take the case of uh, the Affordable Care Act, Obamacare, this was based on a Republican design, and the idea was, you know, we're not going to go full NHS-style healthcare. We're going to do something that we, the other side will buy into. And the other side's response was just marked by intransigence. And on their side, has there been an equivalent concern for our rights, needs, and interests from the side who made a Twitter troll the president? I don't think there has been. And I think if there is a lack of trust on the liberal side, it is just um, an empirically informed recognition that Republicans, when they have um, power of any kind, cannot be trusted not to use that. I mean, just take everything we're learning with impeachment, right? They cannot be trusted not to use that power um, in ways that violate the basic axioms of the system. Whereas Democrats, by contrast, um, I was just talking to um, Senator Sherrod Brown told me, you know, we could have had a public option if we had merely been willing to abolish the legislative filibuster. So on the one hand, you have this attachment to institutional norms that we will straitjacket ourselves with, much to the frustration and fury of progressives. And on the other hand, the only limitation is what can be gotten away with. So I just, I don't, I don't see it as a mutual thing at all in any way. I, I don't know, I'll put that back to you. Yeah. So um, I hear this. I hear this quite a bit um, from fo- from folks on the left, and I think it becomes it 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 comes from a, a couple of different factors. So r- major Republican elites and a non-trivial but not majority of the population has seemed to have been worried about uh, a lot of government control and health care since the Truman administration when it was first proposed. The Republican Party has opposed universal health care for seventy years. And that's not just a matter of, say, big corporations behind them talking, because we know big corporations' interests aren't necessarily in favor of a market anyway. I mean, they've accepted certain kinds of regulation and not others. It's a deep moral conviction among many people in the public, Um, not a majority, but a sizable minority, that that's just too much. No, it's partly ideological. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so that matters. All all I'm saying is there's an asymmetry of the degree of care that was offered towards the other side's convictions. It's true that the Republican Party has become more ideological. It's polarized more, and that's clear in the data. But it, that wasn't true in the 70s. I think it, it, it just it, it was it wasn't true in the 50s at all. It wasn't true in the 60s very much. It wasn't true in the 70s really. Um, Reagan changed things because the Republican Party started to become conservatives. Successfully took it over. There's a. a uh, Princeton uh, political scientist, Nolan McCarty, who just wrote a book called Polarization, What Everyone Needs to Know. And his story is this. He says, look, there were progressives and socialists in the Democratic Party that tried to take it over and polarize it. They failed. But the conservatives took over and succeeded. They lost massively in 1964. But then in the late 70s and early 80s, with Reagan running against um, Ford, he lost in 76. But then he won in 1980 because you had a concerted band of ideologues that were able to take over and polarize things that were people of very, very deep conviction uh, and reflection who were mistaken in various ways. But it's interesting. The same thing could have happened on the left. And I think that's what's happening right now is it's finally the case that the progressives and socialists in the Democratic Party are having uh, increasing influence 
um, particularly now that the Democratic Party is making it easier for them to capture the institutions by weakening superdelegates. So I think we're going to – so you're right that if, if you do the time series, right, and the time series is 1980 to 2015, the story you're telling I think is correct, but not before then. And I'm not sure entirely since then either. Let's grant not before then, but after yeah. then. I don't think, well, yeah. let me put it this way. I think if the party was fully captured by Bernie Sanders and AOC, yeah. right? Yeah. Which is what they seem to be imagining is some sort of like hostile yeah. takeover model, which I think is actually kind of implausible for a few reasons. But let's just say that they do. I think it happened to the Republican Party. Maybe it can't happen to the Democrats, but... In, in I, I mean, I think... Well, I mean, very briefly, I think the Rep Republican Party is a much more vertical institution, and the Republican Party has more mechanisms um, to align individual and party incentives, whereas there are oh, sort I, of separate McCarty, competing bases McCarty of support in the Democratic Party. McCarty makes a really interesting argument that the opposite is true. Actually, the Republican Party is extremely weak in its ability to resist its control by special interests. So, you know, there have been times where the speaker, the Republican speakers of the House, they're weak sauce compared to Nancy. No, 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 no. That's that's true. I'm not defining oh, yeah. the speaker as the House's top-down control. That's a, that's a different debate. That's a different debate. Okay, so we. Here's, 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 but my point is, let's just yeah. let's just ignore that distinction okay. and say okay. that it is captured by Bernie Sanders, and yes. that um, the Green New Deal is our policy. Even then, in that scenario, I yeah. think um, you still have a clear asymmetry in terms of concern or respect for the losers. Because if you look at the Green New Deal, that's very, very carefully written, what, what of it we have, to incorporate the concerns of rural people. It's very, very carefully written to um, address the concerns of um, jobs that might be displaced by moving away from um, a fossil fuel industry. Now, you might say these answers are still inadequate for a hardcore conservative or a hardcore libertarian. Um, and that's fine. I'm not saying these they're not are... just inadequate from those perspectives. They're legitimacy and 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 wealth just catastrophes for those perspectives. Fine. Right. Yeah, but yeah. my point is a sustained effort has been made to say we are not just unilaterally imposing something. We are imposing yeah. something that you can't accept but we're going to try and do so in a way that respects you and makes as big an accommodation for you as we can within our ideology. Okay. I, see, I see no such move on the other side. And indeed, just the opposite. I think the fact that Donald Trump triggers and upsets and pisses liberals off, it's a feature, not a bug. I think people supported him precisely because he upsets the other side. So suppose I grant this to you on economic policy. Let's shift to social policy and rerun the idea. Um, one of the things people are saying about the UK election is it was easier for the right to move left on economics than for the left to move right on social policy. I hear this, and I go ahead and make the argument. So in the US, let's just let's go back, just focus on the US. Take abortion policy. Hmm. Both sides are on all fours with dragging the other side through. And you can see that with a polarization of state law, abortion is not really an issue in, in, in the UK like it is even in Australia, um, uh, but in, in the US uh, or Ireland. Um, so, you know, abortion is a case where I think the left has no care or concern for the right at all um, and, the, and the right's positions. 
Uh, they just want to win. Um, when it comes to re- um, uh, the role of religion in politics, particularly well, okay, let's just let's just take let's just take oh, abortion. It's ferocious. it's ferocious. The attitudes on the left towards sincere conservative people of religious faith is disdain and disgust for the most part. I really I mean, don't know that that's true. Oh, oh, I mean, take the Democratic primary candidates right now. Um, there are a few exceptions. Uh, say Biden. Uh, Actually, can we just stay with the case of abortion for a minute, though? Let's stick with abortion. Um, So grant that the Democratic Party has become uniformly pro-choice at the same time as the Republican Party has become uniformly pro-life, right? So you see the same thing there as you did with race. You've got, you know, there used to be differences within parties. Now there's more or less just two views. Yeah. I grant that there is less concern. And abortion's actually an interesting case because this will lead us back to the public reason stuff. Um Yep, yep, yep. But um so yeah, let's just let's even I don't think this is true. I think that there was a time it's maybe dissipated, but where quite excessive concern was granted, the sort of safe, legal and rare approach to abortion. Um I think there's been a sustained move on the left to say Look, if what we really care about is lowering abortions, let's think, you know, we're not going to compromise on our view of, you know, fundamental moral autonomy of the woman over her own body, but let's work together on getting the number of abortions as close to zero as possible. I think there actually have been olive branches, but let's just say there weren't. Let's just say there's none at all, and our position is solely the... Bodily autonomy of the woman trumps everything, and if you don't like that, fuck you. In that case, even in that case, which I don't think is an accurate caricature of where Democrats are at, or an accurate description, sorry, let's just say that that's true. Then then even in that case, that is only equal to the level of concern that's shown for us from the other side, which is zero. Um, So my view of, of, of abortion politics in the United States is pretty different. Because um, I'm interested in the views of rank-and-file pro-lifers and people that are Republican for that reason. There are a lot of people in this country that um, are voting Republican pretty much just because of abortion and their economic policies are closer to the left. And they feel like there's no place at all for their concerns. So I think you've got at least a million Catholics have roughly pro-life, pro-welfare state views. Um, so, yes, it's the case that there are these sort of hardcore pro-lifers that will brook no compromise. But And most Americans, you know, are willing to compromise if only they could have, say, re- bans on abortion in the third trimester, heavy restrictions in the second. Um, so a lot of pro-lifers would be pretty happy. Um, the state legislatures are more polarized, and, and they've, they've had some sort of, you know, go-to-hell attitudes, particularly in my state of Ohio, but- where— but you know, that's but... the population. I'm talking about what's coming from the parties. What's coming from the parties is the Republican Party has been captured by the hardcore pro-lifers, right? Um, it's interesting. Uh, it, de- it, de- it depends. So, for instance, if you go back to the 2000s, um, I actually think that the push for pro-life stuff was pretty tame. Something changed in 2010, though, when Republicans started taking over state houses. Then the state parties started to get really polarized on abortion um, to where to where I think that's a, a relatively uh, relatively recent uh, phenomenon. But 
but okay, so so we, well, we agree that at least the description I've given uh, with abortion politics is there. I think when it comes to LGBT equality, there's a similar level of polarization and mutual distrust. For instance, I defended very modest religious exemptions in my work on fully and completely liberal grounds, hmm. on Rawlsian grounds. Um, and the level of hostility I get, um, for instance, allowing uh, religious universities and seminaries that prohibit LGBT relationships between students and faculty, allowing them to retain their tax-exempt status rather than being treated like Bob Jones was for banning interracial dating. That's something I talked to folks on the left who are like, no, 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 that's got to go. I mean, Beto basically said as much himself, and then Buttigieg was like, no, no, I no, mean, no. Having, having <clears throat> worked, my view on this is a bit different in that having worked for charities quite a lot, I'll yeah. just say the way we do tax-exempt status or not is yeah. really weird. Oh, I agree with that too. Um, so but but, think uh, about the symbolic nature of, of it, right? Sure, 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 but, like, all of that is still in the weeds compared to you made Donald Trump president. Like, you thought that was a sensible or justifiable thing to do. Look, I'm not saying, look, I am sure there is a feeling on the part of some social conservatives of, like, social threat from what happens if, um... Uh, liberals take over all of our cultural and political institutions. I'm not discounting that that's real. I'm saying the objective level of threat of paying a different tax rate is much less than the objective level of threat that liberals feel from having undocumented communities deported or police feel like they can shoot people on sight. So the objective level of threat is quite different. I think one set of concerns is reasonable and the other isn't. And then just in terms of how we express those fundamentally divergent worldviews, you know, I'm not saying that liberal ideas aren't threatening to conservatives. I say when we present them publicly, some effort, partial and incomplete and could be better, but some effort is made not to intentionally antagonise the other side. When I look at how Donald Trump presents himself, and I look at how most of the party actually presents itself, it's the opposite. Every effort is made to intentionally antagonize and to humiliate and to degrade the other side. I just don't don't see an equality. Do you think that that was true of George W. Bush or Romney? Well, I think Romney not... No, and I think what's interesting about Romney, though, and also McCain to a degree, is they refused to engage in coded appeals to race and religion in a way that Trump has shown himself more than That's ready right. to do. Right? That's right. Um, I think Bush is probably something of a middle ground between mm-hmm, those mm-hmm. two. I think he was willing to engage, certainly in, in appeals to um, religion, but certainly in appeals to value systems that are necessarily mm-hmm. exclusionary and denying the human rights of um, LGBTQIA individuals. So Bush yeah. is something of a middle ground. I think what's interesting is the party, both as the sort of loyalist base and as an institutional structure, very clearly didn't trust Romney and didn't trust him yep. for those reasons. And in many ways, people talk about Trump as an aberration from the norms of um, how American politics and how the Republican Party is sort of quote-unquote supposed to work. But in many ways, he's just a much more direct and honest reflection 
of where it is at now, precisely because he is ready to make those um, appeals to race and to religion, and he is willing to intentionally antagonise the other side, which is something that it seems like this Republican Party wants in a way that simply has no equivalent on the Democratic side. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that's pretty one of the things that's pretty interesting about the dynamic that you're describing is a kind of coarsening on the right. So I have this impression that, like in 1985, the picture, like the patrician, you know, non, you know, more sort of like honorably behaving George H. W. Bush type of guy, like mm. that the was worst, more right? true, and it wasn't always true, but it was much better than it is now, right? Trump saw a whole new level of of this. And um, I've often sort of speculated on why, um, what's, what's happened. Because you're right. I mean, Obama's, like, his whole MO was like, let's come together, let's, let's move forward. And every, almost every attempt he made to compromise was, was batted down by a pretty belligerent Republican Party that ultimately uh, gave rise even to, to Trump with some precursors like Sarah Palin or whatever. Um, what, I mean, what happened? I mean, what occurred? Um, because I don't see this as just like a feature of the Republican Party. I mean, I see like the Republican Party for a long time just taking on Democratic ideas and saying, let's do half of that for a, for a while, um, really until the 80s. Um, so well, what happened with the coarsening? Well, one of um, uh, Ross Douthat's thoughts here was uh, this is the post-Christian right. That as long as there was this sense in the country that most people were Christians, even though it's still true, but it was more true then, um, there were certain norms about being honorable that made certain kinds of behavior simply scandalous. Um, where, so, for instance, I think 25 years ago, Donald Trump's personal behavior in his personal life would have simply disqualified him from even being considered by the Republican rank and file. It was already kind of a scandal that um, – Reagan had been divorced, um, but it wasn't a, a huge deal in the end. Um, but um, I I'm sometimes wonder if um, a lot of the media developments, but also just a change in view of where um, this became cool at some point. Um, and I think it started on the left being uncool, uh, and now it's fully filtered into the right. Um, so, and I mean, for a lot of folks on the left, it was a matter of sort of protest tactics. So, so, so the idea is that like, you have to be loud and you have to be coarse and you have to be difficult because otherwise the centers of power are just going to ignore you. Um, so you have to be disruptive. Um, and I think, you know, there's some truth in that, but I actually think that as the right has sort of in some, it's elites have a little bit secularized. Um, that these these norms of um, be difficult and provocative to get attention have have become common. And here's my example of how it got it through the right, which is conservative student organizations on college campuses. So I'm sure you've encountered them. De they've been deliberately provocative for a very long time. And uh, it's from when I was in college in the early 2000s, extremely provocative, uh, you know, affirmative action, bake sales, those kinds of things. I think it's an attention-grabbing tactic for people who feel like they're on the outskirts of society. Um, and um, I think that as left-wing cultural power has expanded, um, the right has become more civil vis-a-vis -vis the left. Uh, the left has become more civil vis-a-vis -vis the right. 
Um, so, so my view is in the early 90s, the left was sort of more vulgar, whereas now the right definitely is. Um, but it's sort of flipped. Um, now, the level of complete lying and indifference to the truth, that's unprecedented in either party. Hmm. Um, that's just a, that's just like sort of like completely shocking. Um, I don't really entirely know what explains it, but I think it's going to turn out to be pretty idiosyncratic to Trump, given his sort of limitations, I guess. There's also sort of the balkanization of our media and we're sort of yep. diverging into these like hermetically... That's sealed right. bubble. Um, let's pause there with the applied stuff because yeah. that could be a, a long thing. Yeah, um, and fun. I, I want to take. Well, well, let me say this. I think it's certainly true that if you imagine four quadrants mapped by attitudes on economics left and right and social issues left and right, yeah, 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 I know yeah. that's quite crude. It is definitely the case that there are more people in the economically left and uh, socially right quadrant. Yeah. than there are in the converse quadrant. Yeah, that's right. So we're always having this question about, like, why can't we just have a responsible, socially liberal billionaire who believes in reducing taxes for corporations but is also for gay rights? And it's like, because nobody fucking wants that. Like, nobody, apart <laughs> from <laughs> media and political <laughs> elites, nobody yeah. nobody wants that. So that's true. Well, except for libertarians, and, and they're not nothing in the U.S. <laughs> but it's like... But it's small. It's, it's like... Tiny. 6% of the population small, in that small, quadrant, yeah. whereas it's like 20%. Most, oh, yeah. pe most people are convergent, though. Like, most people are socially left and social, social, economically left and socially left, or conservative in both directions. Yeah. But the, the mismatch isn't evenly applied With the exception of minorities. Mm. So, for instance, you'll find that many in the black community are socially conservative but economically liberal. Um, but, but yeah, in the white population, it's quite polarized in the way that you described. Yeah. So, yeah, 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 yeah that's right. That's I right. Think, I think that is, okay. But so I want to bring this back to the theory though. Yeah. Because to good. my mind, the abortion case, um, yeah. you know, we're getting into like, which side is being less respectful, less yeah. civil. Um, I think this is one in which it's just inevitable that questions of trust and civility and loser's consent are going to go yeah. straight out the window. Yeah. Um, so there's, like, two challenges to the sort of convergent idea of public reason, right? There's yeah. one, is it possible? And two, is it desirable? The abortion case would seem to strike me as, is this possible? Is it possible yeah. to have a rights-based consensus that people who have different moral worldviews, you know, can have different goals in life or whatever, but they can all accept that this, this is the, the rights-based consensus. Well, the challenge would go as such, e even assuming that there can, and I think that's a big assumption, but even assuming that there can be this overlapping consensus, there would then be the question of who or mm -hmm. what is that consensus applied oh, to. Yeah. Yep, so yep. is, you know, a one-month, two-month, three-month, four-month-old fetus a rights-bearing entity under this view? A another analogy would be uh, some people claim that animals, at least like the higher primates or whatever, have rights comparable to humans. In the past, we've debated, you know, do black people get brought in within the rights protection? And my point would be not that there aren't better or worse answers yeah. on that, but those answers can't be defended and justified without reference to a comprehensive moral doctrine. Yeah, 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 yeah. good, good, good. So um, I've said to many people that abortion is the hardest case for public reason views. 
because liberalism is a theory about how to treat people, not how to count them. And so the first thing I could say is suppose – I mean it, it's significant that if we agreed who persons were that this would be how to treat them. Like mm-hmm. that would be an accomplishment. So, But how do we handle cases where we disagree about who counts as a person? And it's very difficult to know because for the pro-lifer, you know, when we're talking about justifying coercion, there's the advocate for the fetus pushing for a policy which coerces the mother. But there's also um, – the mother for the pro-lifer coercing the fetus. So if you're the pro-lifer, you've got three subjects of justification there, the voter and the politician lump them together, the mother and the fetus, and they're all kind of at odds, uh, or at least in a certain kind of way. Whereas there's only two subjects of justification for the pro-choicer because there isn't for the the fetal case. Um, In that case, the, there's there's only a couple of things you can do. You don't have the same resources that you have with other other questions. Um, first, you try to get public justification on the kinds of procedures you would use to resolve these disputes so that actual violence doesn't break out. Um, so you need some kind of justification of constitutional order. And within that, my view about this is that in the U.S. we do far much, far too much at the judicial level. I think abortion would still be really acrimonious, but it would be less so if legislatures could develop more refined views in response to changes in the attitudes of voters rather than doing everything at, at, at such a remove. Um, so you can say we can get consensus on the procedures. Um, I think we can also um, at least some, some, some degree of consensus. Another thing that we can do is decentralize uh, around the groups uh, that have different theories of personhood. So, for instance, the U.S., because of our history with racism, um, has ended up being less federalist than it was designed to be. But if we were more federalist in the way that, say, Canada or Switzerland was, it might be easier for us to solve these problems at the local level. Now, of course, for the pro-lifers, oh, we can't ban abortion in Vermont. And for, you know, the the pro-choicers say, yeah, we can't ban abortion or we can't legalize abortion in Alabama. Um, But that becomes, I think, a kind of compromise when— the set of what can be publicly justified to people at the national level is empty because everyone has a defeater for what's in the set of things can be justified. So you have constitutional procedure and decentralization. But yeah, beyond that, politics, abortion politics is a kind of low-grade warfare because the differences are so deep that you have to rest with reason, persuasion, and the settlement of disputes. So, so here's just me admitting that on abortion, you know, that's the hardest case for the view but because his- we don't disagree the boundaries of persons. Um, animals are a little bit easier, actually, I think. Um, but, um, and I think later term fetuses are, are, are not, uh, so hard either, but first term, first term fetuses really hard. Well, let's, let's leave animals aside. Cause that was yeah. just another, like, I think yeah. that can be subsumed within a more general theory, but here's yeah. why I think the public justification for procedures um, yeah. So, in other words, even if all sides disagree with an outcome, there yeah. can, in theory, be a set of institutions and procedures that all sides recognize as legitimate. But before yeah. we even get into the question of, like, should those procedures be legislative or judicial, should they be federal or should they be decentralized, it seems to me like that that still doesn't work because both sides, and by both sides I mean, you know, 
party-line pro-lifers and pro-choicers. I think there's about a third of America that's somewhere in the middle, um, but let's yeah, discount yeah, yeah. them. Yeah. Um, both sides could, and in practice do, that the, say that the moral urgency of this issue is overriding, yeah. and that just as in the same way as um, it is not permissible for uh, a public reason-justified set of institutions to commit a genocide, um, yeah. Well, well, to you know, to pro-lifers, this is a genocide, you know, and yeah. the same can be said in reverse. So both sides, in practice, claim that this should just be written into the rules of the game and should not be up for dispute, either by a yeah. democratic majority or some sort of like philosopher yeah. king supreme court. And yeah. it just comes prior. The question yeah. of like who or what gets included is prior yeah. to the. Yep. public reason-justified institutions, I think. Yeah. So, I mean, look, when it comes to the pure issue with abortion, there's a way in which we're in a kind of modus vivendi or institutionalized aggression that we aren't with almost any other issue. So the way that, you know, you want to work around this is agreement on a procedure, decentralization, um, subsidies for certain kinds of policies that we can all agree on that are beneficial. Mm. You know, I mean, people like to say Republicans don't support these things at the at the party level. They're they're happy. I'm not the party level, the, the the voter level. I think they're happy to have better childcare policy. And now you're starting to see some moves from just in the last couple of weeks from, uh, say, or just yesterday from Romney proposing tax policies or to expansions to make child rearing easier because that reduces the abortion rate. Um, the supposed hostility to contraception of the right is only to uh, forcing people to pay for abortive assets. So it's not a general hostility. So there's a lot of different other policies that could be used to reduce abortions um, that I think could be publicly justified, as well as procedures for keeping us from breaking out into institutionalized aggression. But yeah, in the terms of the book, the eligible set there's empty. So we're all in on those issues. We're in a kind of modus vivendi. That's why I say I'm not saying every. Case. I'm not saying every single um, engagement or every single yeah. part of the line yeah. is necessarily zero sum. I'm yeah. just saying. There is yep. an element to this dispute that is truly zero sum. No, and you're right. You're right. I think any public reason liberal who tr who tells you that it can resolve every issue is ultimately going to be stretching the theories in ways that make it less plausible. So the why reason I like this kind of public reason view that I have, starting from re where real people are and idealizing their own real commitments, is that whether you can achieve a public justification is partly an empirical matter. But when you can't achieve it, it's actually substantive. It's actually meaningful. It's not just a theoretical trick, hmm. right? So I think what I just have to say is in the case of the abortion issue, there's a bit of a modus vivendi that I think there aren't in other issues. Because hmm. usually a public reason liberal would say, look, in the absence of a public justification, don't coerce. But in abortion, we don't even disagree about – we don't even agree about what the non-coercive baseline is. Right. Because, you know, so but in cases where we can agree, then I think we can make the case for no coercion. But in this case, it's ambiguous. So it's, you can't say much. So, yeah, I just say modus vivendi uh, to some degree. So, so you're right. Let me build out of that then, because I think yeah. you see it and most sort of public reason Rawlsians see it as like, in general, this thing works. But yes, this is a specific instance where it's really hard or maybe it doesn't yes, even work at all. For my mind, this is one example, a particularly clear and real-world example, but one sort of example of why the whole thing is kind of a bit iffy, in that this is 
not a popular view, and it's one that I've had trouble selling people on, but, you know, it is my view, so whatever. Yeah. <laughs> um, is that the abortion case is a specific instance of all of these arguments, all of these worldviews are um, constellations and patternings of essentially contestable concepts, yep. and that you will necessarily have divergent conceptions of those concepts yep. competing for real world acknowledgement and use and legitimacy. So in this world, uh, case, you have a concept which is personhood, which everyone can sign up to, but then you just have two different conceptions diverge in this specific instance and diverge quite yep. dramatically and consequentially. Now, that to my mind is the if I can put a case to to the, you know, public reason person, that's the clearest possible one I can do. But it's not unique. All of the words that we use, like freedom, rights, autonomy, um, and so on, these are all essentially contestable concepts, and they will all mean different things to different people. And you could say, well, my meanings of them are right. But that's just to say that everyone should be a liberal like I am, which, fine, but then all you're doing is saying conservatives should be liberals. You've, you've, you've yeah. forfeited the ground of trying to cleave out this um, special, like, almost depoliticized centre. Um, so I, I can give some more examples, but I'll pause there. How do you think of the problem of, like, moral terms just mean different things to different people, and there's no real way to adjudicate between those meanings without reference to other moral concepts, which is just to say without reference to a comprehensive moral doctrine. Yeah, so there's, there's two ways to think about that objection, whether it's an objection to public reason liberalism itself, because its concepts are contestable, or whether public reason is committed in a special way to um, nailing down what certain ideas mean so that they can be used in politics. Hmm. Um, so, I mean, if it's a, a worry about public reason liberalism as such, then what you just say is, look, yes, all these terms on political theory are contestable, and then you just make the case that the public reason view captures them the best. Um, but if it's within the view, that this things get pretty interesting. So if you say, oh, well, look, well, public reason is trying to establish a common framework among people who disagree. So it's like committed in its DNA Yes, that's, that's what I'm saying, with, yeah, is the second one. This, this, this objection doesn't yeah. apply to your theoretical framework yes. any more than it applies to anyone else's political yes. framework. Yes. It's not uniquely leveled at you. It's yes. just you're trying to do things yep. that that's maybe right. other people aren't. That's or right. maybe, or that's maybe right. they are, but then right. if they are, then yeah. their theory runs into the same difficulty. Yeah, so no, so this is good. This is one difference from the uh, Arizona kind of public reason liberals than the mainline Rawlsians, in that we are actually happy to allow for a lot more diversity and contestation in the model um, than most are. So, for instance, we allow reasonable disagreement about justice uh, into public reason, um, whereas you know people in the mainline schools on Rawls uh, tend to want to restrict it, um, and they run into trouble in wanting to say, look, reasonable people all think A or B. Because you could say, okay, well, people can test all this stuff. So one response to that kind of worry is just to try to revise public reason and its basic framework to allow for more kinds of diversity, hmm. and then try to find ways of establishing social contracts between diverse agents. Hmm. Um, another way to do this is to do something the mainliners don't like to do very much, which is to bring in a great deal of social science when it comes to how humans actually cooperate. Hmm. 
So all of these differences sort of uh, come out of the public reason project of Jerry Gauss uh, at Arizona rather than John Rawls, and I'm one of Jerry's students. And so we take as a starting point in public reason views that we're trying to take on as much diversity as we can and try to figure out how to live together despite it. So, so we just want to allow a huge amount of contestation within the model um, uh, of public justification where people disagree about liberty and they disagree about equality and they disagree about empirical effects of various policies. In fact, following Ryan Muldoon, you know, as a philosopher at Buffalo, and it's kind of, we like to joke, an honorary Arizonan, in his book on diversity in the social contract, he argues that we can even form social contracts between people with different social ontologies. Hmm. So part of the project of what Ryan and I call the diversity project within public reason is to try to allow as much disagreement as you can within the model, um, precisely to accommodate the concerns that that you're raising, which is that some there's so much that's reasonably contestable. So yeah. I would say that your worry cuts ice. I mean, really cuts against the mainliner public reason liberal. But I think we have certain ways of taking on a lot of what you're proposing. But, so that, I mean, so, I wonder though right. how much that once you take on so much, yeah, you're effectively forced to abandon this idea of overlapping consensus. Because I think where there are overlapping consensuses in real-world politics, they tend to be people agreeing to a particular set of procedures or even outcomes, yeah. but for quite different reasons. That's right, and that's the convergence you allows for this. So but, there, but, mean, that, yeah. but that doesn't... What you don't get there is stability or permanence. So just to give a real-world example, the sort of so-called post-war consensus in the UK, where not just procedures but outcomes, a broad variety of liberals, socialists, conservatives, accepted the broad contours of the welfare state, but they saw in it very different things. For conservatives, it was about social peace and stability. For liberals, it was about providing equality of opportunity. And for socialists, it was about a more overt form of equality. But that, of course, all comes apart in the sort of Hayekian, Thatcherite revolution, because the circumstances of the world that make that convergence possible then pull apart. It seems like even in a, you know, like you say, a more accepting of fundamental diversity view, that what you the, the, the all you could the, the, these overlapping consensuses are temporary truces from an underlying norm of deep political contestation they're not permanent they will fall apart and maybe what will result will be better maybe what will be worse and we're, we're going through a falling apart right now but that's nothing out of the ordinary or nothing necessarily to be scared mm -hmm, of mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. so um i mean look i mean it's a great concern, but democracy is change. Mm. And um, the question is, how much do you want to hold fast? So like a lot of us within the more diverse, the diversity project within public reason, we do disagree about how much stuff we want to let vary. I mean, one of my worries about and this is, you know, a lot of us worries about Ryan's view, which is so cool, is that it looks like almost everything's up for grabs all the time. Um, and so it looks chaotic. But maybe it is. Yeah, but maybe it is, and maybe that's not so bad, because another thing the Diversity Project cares about is discovery. Hmm. Because there's kinds of bargains that we can't anticipate as theorists. There's kinds of solutions that we couldn't come up with. And um, another reason to allow for a lot of diversity in the model is you might discover more ways to get along. Um, and that's a theme of Jerry Gauss's 2016 book, The Tyranny of the Ideal, where in an open society, people can figure out more ways to cooperate and 
more ways to get to their respective ideals. Hmm. Um, um, so, I mean, in a way, this brings it back to Mill, <laughs> right? I mean, we're talking about diversity leading to discovery. Yeah. Um, so the hope is that the diversity view has enough resources to have some stability, but also is better than more static views because it allows for more discovery of more ways to cooperate together. Mm -hmm. So the question is, what institutions can we have that, again, coming back to Mill, allows for experiments in living, mm -hmm. right? And that becomes a really big part of the diversity project for people like me or Jerry or Ryan or uh, Brian Kogelman or Fred D'Agostino. Um, a, a lot of us you know, think that that's really the name of the game and figuring out how to benefit from diversity and discovery in a public reason model, whereas the mainliners just seem way less concerned with this stuff. A lot of it's just figuring out who's reasonable and who isn't. And you know, I have friends of mine in the mainliner camp, but I think that's kind of boring um, because I think it just ends up being me and my friends. But, but um, the, the who's reasonable and who isn't, that can't be adjudicated without reference to comprehensive moral doctrines, I don't <clears> think. Um, it depends on which notion you appeal to. I thin it out a whole lot in my work so that it's, it doesn't end up cutting, being a huge problem and it's something to do with being able to propose reciprocal terms of cooperation. But on my view, you don't even have to recognize the burdens of judgment. Like, you don't even have to recognize that there are reasonable people who disagree with you to be reasonable. Although, um, and you certainly don't have to accept sort of thick egalitarian principles. So, um, for the mainliners, yeah, reasonableness needs to do a lot of work. And for me, it does, it, it does not too much. But even aside from the, um, egalitarian stuff, let's just stay with the first principle, right, like the yeah. equal distribution of rights and so on. I mean, look, I'm not, what I'm not doing here is arguing against any specific conclusion. I don't think there's anything Rawls wanted to do to the world that I find yeah. particularly <laughs> horrible, right? But so, you referenced this mill idea of um, experiments in living, right? Yeah. In the idea is like, how do we most fully empower the free development of individuality or autonomy or however you want to express that, right? I think in your book you use the word agency quite a lot. Yeah. Um, there's how do you most fully empower that? And people might do that to lead a conservative life or a liberal life. I think my point would be, already in that formulation, you've appealed to overtly and distinctively liberal conceptions of certain concepts that won't be able to be accepted by not just like fringe lunatics or something, but by most main... Let me, let me give you an example, actually, because I wrote this down from your book. This is in the uh, uh, rights of agency bit. So you mm -hmm. write, everyone will want some substantive weighty rights of agency, and given how important agency is, even to non-liberals, they will sacrifice their authority to control others so as to secure authoritative protections for themselves. Now, I think in appealing to agency in that way, and I'm not saying there's anything wrong with this per se, but you've appealed to a conception of agency and there's sort of related concepts of autonomy and so on. You've appealed to a conception of agency which is distinctively liberal, both in that it has a specific meaning, but also it's a primary good for liberals. It's, it's a centre concern. Whereas for most conservatives, there is a conception of agency, but it's quite different and it's much more bounded. And it's bounded specifically by the idea of an extra-human social order which could be the libertarian free market, it could be traditional gender roles in the family, it could be a particular authoritarian structure within society. But in all cases, agency operates within a social frame 
which is predictable, observable, and preservable. And agency exists within how far do individuals um, conform to that or transgress away from it. So do you conform to the laws of the free market and you express agency within it and you go out and you succeed and you pull yourself up by the bootstraps and you're a self-made man? Or do you fall afoul of those laws? And then, of course, the way conservatives usually express that is through the closely related idea of responsibility. And what that means is, did your agency conform to that set of norms or not? Now, to go back to your quote, your quote assumes everyone can accept agency as open-ended and as a primary good. But I'd say most conservatives can't. Most conservatives' agency is bounded by extra-human structures and is such a secondary good to them. Now, I think according to my liberal conception of rationality, that that conservative view is irrational, and I think there's many arguments to be given against it. But I just, you know, to go to the case, I, I think most conservatives will say, no, I don't want to sacrifice the authority to control others so as to preserve my own autonomy, because they understand something different by autonomy. And that's fine. You know, we can say we're right and our meanings are right, but all we're really saying there is liberalism is right and conservatism is wrong. Oh. Yeah, yeah. So that um, was quite a long objection. Sure, sure. <clears throat> so I think this is, is, is a good concern, and it's one reason that I stress their freedom of association, because I like to think that my view about the protection of agency rights is something that can be taken on if agents are understood as bound for save many conservatives by the associations in which they're reared. Hmm. So people at least want the agency rights so that their churches hmm. or that their their group or whatever is able, their family are able to survive if another, you know, hegemonic power were to take over. The, the sense is just that people aren't radically risk averse as, as Rawls thinks. But most people are going to think, look, I would rather have protections from the hegemon of my associations than to gamble on being the boss. Hmm. Um um, so that's that's the thought there, although I'm going to be talking about this more in the follow up where I talk mm -hmm. about, like, the nature of freedom of association. I've only got a couple pages on it in this book, but I have a whole chapter on it in the next where I talk about the way in which it promotes social and political trust in the real world and so on. So. So, yeah, I mean, uh, if, if you didn't have robust freedom of association, your I think your objection would just be true. Mm -hmm. um, and so the best way to take on the non-liberal is to have pretty robust freedom of association. It's going to rub the real liberal wrong way in some cases, because a lot of those are going to be pretty hierarchical. It could also uh, rub the conservative the wrong way, and they would say true agency can only exist with respect to overarching social norms. And yeah. even if we can have conservative associations, if that's within a society who, I'm not saying this argument is right in any way, but if that's within a society whose overall culture and ethos is liberal, then true agency won't really exist within that society. I'm not saying yeah, that's a correct yeah, it, view. I'm saying look, it's something people can and will think. At, at some point, you have to say that somebody's unreasonable, right? And if someone says, look, my view is only safe when I'm in charge, I mean, you know, I mean, yeah, you have to draw a line somewhere. Um, but I think actually in the, in the real world, I mean, um, there are some uh, re religious groups that I think that's going to be fine. I think for most Christian groups, you may disagree with this, I think that's fine. Um, I think for many Muslims it is, 
There are um, certain uh, laws banning apostasy uh, in Arab Muslim countries that worry me some. Um, but I think all the other major religions, it's actually pretty easy, um, especially those that have well-developed conceptions of their own role as a minority, like Jewish people do. Um, so you, you kind like Rawls does, you kind of have to go religion by religion. Um, but, um, I think for the most part, people think, okay, what really matters is protecting my family and my house of worship and our activities. I think, leaving aside religion, I mean, this is an empirical yeah. claim, and it's a bigger empirical claim than we have time for. I think most conservatives don't see it that way. I think they don't prioritise autonomy over a particular overarching social structure in a way that this argument would require. And as such, their acceptance of liberal institutional institutions and norms is only ever fleeting and transitory yeah. and in some ways strategic um i think i mean i th i mean it's difficult because um it depends on what kind of conservatives we're after i mean 300 years ago sure um and to some degree you know people are shaped by liberal institutions um what i'm suggesting is that in any diverse society there's always the risk that you'll be the political loser and that people tend to become pretty liberal when they're on the uh, losing end. Um, although, interestingly, I mean, this is a whole other conversation. That's actually not the way that all religious conservatives in the U.S. are responding. Um, so. Well, there's sort of a debate right now between David French and what's-his-name about, like, should That's, drag yeah, queen storyhour be permissible? Which is just a key instance of, like, can you live in a society well, where other people have look, different points of view, you know? I, I like... I, I'm, Amari's okay, but if you want the heavy-duty integralists guys that are that are super going to give you all the theory and stuff, you, you got to go to Tom Pink and uh, Adrian Vermeule. I like Vermeule. Uh, I don't agree with him on anything, but he's a lovely writer. Yeah, yeah and and um and uh, a fun tweeter. Um, yes. Yeah, they're flat out just plain unreasonable. I mean, I I you have to draw the line somewhere because they're not proposing reciprocal terms of social cooperation. They're saying I should be in charge because I'm correct. Um, and as much as I respect the intelligence of the integralists and their wit, hmm. um, uh, yeah, no, you, I mean, look, I have to draw the line with, with somebody, uh, somewhere. So, um, but I, so, but I think you would take on quite a few conservatives if you just protect robust freedom of association. So, so what I hear you saying is, you know, this is a theory. I think it can justify itself to a lot of people. But not yeah. all. You know, we're going to have to draw the line, and we're drawing the line fairly aggressively. We're cutting out big chunks of the population here, right? If we're cutting out... Um, is it possible that if the goal of a liberal theory is to get as much buy-in as possible, that you could actually get more buy-in by appealing to a specific conception of the good, like Mill's free development of individuality as a good in itself? <laughs> Definitely not that one. Really? Why not? <laughs> Well, because I think it's not a, a very common view. Um, I don't, I don't, I don't know how many people build their lives around autonomy. It would be some kind of like low-grade uh, traditionalist uh, polytheism of some kind, like where there's you know some kind of religiosity and piety and sanctity and sacredness recognized and protected. Not just the leading European weird psychology people. I mean, I'm talking about like 
Everybody in India, everybody in China, everybody in Africa. Let's just say everyone, everyone in the United States. We say it's better that people don't suffer, and to the extent that they're not suffering, it's better that they be allowed to make their own decisions, not because they always make the best decisions, but because they tend to make those decisions better than any governing elite. That's my starting point. That's what I need people to buy into. I think a broad plurality of competing moral worldviews could accommodate, and I say accommodate, that within them. Maybe more than could accommodate the public reason stuff. I think when we, if you and I had more time to sort through what autonomy meant, that uh, the notion of autonomy that would allow for that much variability in a single society that we're going to, we're going to come, we're going to be closer together than you might think. Hmm. Um, because if we push the million version, it's a kind of autonomy that tons of people are going to reasonably reject. But since you alluded that it would allow lots of diversity, then it can't be the full blown million view. I don't think so. Well, we'd have to talk about that. Um, but it's, it's diverse yeah. because it's good for people. You know what I mean? Like anyway, I'll, I yeah yeah okay yeah and no, I, I I see and public reason liberals can appeal to what's good for people it's just bounded uh, in a way it isn't for the um the liberal perfectionists although public reason liberals disagree about how much you can appeal to the good um and I think you can appeal to it a lot uh, as long as there's an overlapping consensus on it okay let's pause and you're putting on your coat yeah. so I know you have to go the book is okay. must politics be war restoring our trust in the open society which I yeah. assume is on Amazon and fine booksellers anywhere. Yep, is there yep. anywhere else you'd like to direct listeners to go? A uh, yeah, website, uh, Twitter, anything yep. like that? Yeah, so um, you could find me by my first name on Twitter, or on, on, on Facebook, um, and you could find me on Twitter at at KValier. Um, you could find my blog, it's just called Reconciled, mm-hmm. um, uh, com slash Reconciled. You could follow me there. Uh, and, of, you know, if you're, if you're really interested in the book, uh, you know, hopefully uh, there'll be a place where I share. There is a place where I can share uh, podcasts and blog posts that I do want it. And I'd also like your listeners to know that there's going to be an, a much more empirically oriented follow up mm. where I try to show how various liberal institutions promote real trust in the real world. That'll be coming out with Oxford uh, in October. So a lot of there'll be a lot of fun stuff to uh, to talk about with this project if you're interested. Cool. Thank you, Professor. I feel like we yeah. could have uh, um, we we got, really got into it there. So I really appreciate yeah. your time today. Yeah, we could have easily talked on the two hours. So.